The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Well, one of the greatest stories in the world and in scripture is the story of the Exodus. And so I know you don't have to have been around the church very long or most of your life to know the story of the Exodus. Maybe you've seen the Ten Commandments or the Prince of Egypt, one of those, but it is, it is one of the epic stories. As a matter of fact, there are only really two stories in the Bible. They are creation and Exodus. And all of the other stories that cascade and trickle down are basic retellings of those two stories. And so, yeah, they take up a lot of scripture, but in every case, your life is living out the story of God creating something or God liberating something, that there's a release from bondage. So the story of the Exodus, as many of you know, begins when the Israelites make their home in Egypt and over time they just become too many and so they are enslaved in Egypt. And along comes one of the most ruthless pharaohs that ever sat on the throne in Egypt. And because the Hebrews have become so many, he decides what we've got to do is that we have got to kill all of the boys under two. And so he launches a genocide. And it just happens that one of the boys born under that regime is a boy named Moses. And so you might remember that Moses' mother works in the Pharaoh's home. And she hears this is happening. So she and Moses' older sister, Miriam, take baby Moses and put him in the reeds. And he's later found by officials from Pharaoh's house and Pharaoh's daughter. And he's raised in Pharaoh's house. But when he comes into adulthood, he realizes, like, these really aren't my people. Like, the Israelites are my people. And so a number of things happen in quick succession that lead Moses out to the desert And he spends 40 years out in the desert tending his father-in-law's sheep. And he is visited by God. And he's visited by God in this little story of the burning bush. Not with me, if you remember the story of the burning bush. And God says to Moses, I want you to go back to Egypt and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. To release them. They've been enslaved for hundreds and hundreds of years. God is finally responding to their pleas. And so Moses goes back and the book of Exodus tells us that story. And it is an epic story. And this is what happens when Moses and Aaron approach Pharaoh. Chapter five, this is what Exodus tells us. says, not long after Moses and Aaron confronted Pharaoh. They say, the eternal, Israel's God, has a message for you. Release my people so that they may go and celebrate a feast in my honor in the desert. That's all Moses and Aaron are asking for. Like, let them go so we can have a feast. And Pharaoh says, and who is this God you call the eternal one, that I should heed his message and release his people Israel? I do not know any God by that name. And this is really important because one of the things that Pharaoh is saying is that he's Pharaoh. He's got the best education in Egypt. And part of that education 
was learning about all of the gods. And Egypt has a lot of gods. They've got gods over the air and gods over the water, gods over wildlife, gods, 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 gods. He's had to learn a lot about gods. And Moses and Aaron show up and they say, this God, the God of the Hebrews says, release my people. And Pharaoh says, you know what? All of the smart and sophisticated people, all of the educated people, we've never heard of your God. And why should I do that? So Pharaoh says, I do not know any God by that name. And furthermore, I do not intend to release Israel. And Moses and Aaron come back and they say, the God of the Hebrews has visited us. We ask that you allow us to travel three days, three days distance into the desert to sacrifice to the eternal, our God. Otherwise, he may become angry and come after us with disease or sword. Like this is really simple, Pharaoh. Let us go three days out into the desert and we're gonna have a festival. We're gonna have a celebration out in the desert. And the thing that you need to know about this, Pharaoh, is it's, it's in your best interest if you do. Because if we don't, this God may get really upset and give us disease or the sword. And guess what happens to all of your big plans, all of your infrastructure? You see all of those pyramids that you're having us build, all these bricks that we're making all the time? What happens if we're all sick or dead? Like your whole infrastructure plan is dead too. It's in your best interest to let us go and celebrate. And Pharaoh says, no. And so you'll know some of the story after that. There are 10 plagues in quick succession, things like frogs and lice. The Nile turns to blood. And then finally, that last one, as God tells the Israelites, he says, I'm going to send my angel. So here's what you need to do. Take the blood of a lamb and paint it over the door to your houses. And when my spirit comes, when the angel comes, your houses will be passed over, but it will slay the firstborns of the houses without the blood of the lamb. And that's what happens in Exodus. And one of those children that dies is Pharaoh's son. And so finally, Pharaoh relents. After all of this, after having been told from the beginning, it's in your best interest to do this. Now he realizes it is. And so it's time for the Israelites to leave. And this is how Exodus tells that story in Exodus 13. It says, after Pharaoh sent the people out, this is the Israelites, after he's let them go free, God did not take them by the coastal road that runs out through the land of the Philistines, even though that was the nearest and easiest route. Instead, God said, for if they see battle with those contentious Philistines, they might regret their decision and then return to Egypt. So God chose a different 
longer path that led the community of his people through the desert toward the Red Sea. The Israelites marched out of the land of Egypt like an army ready for battle. Okay, there's a lot going on in these very short passages like that, that, you, that you might not see. So the first thing that's happening is that Exodus tells us that God leads the Israelites, not the coastal route, but through the desert. And his concern is that they avoid war. And the reason is that that coastal route was one of the main trading routes. And it was often fought over between the Egyptians and the Philistines. And so what the Egyptians had done besides always being in constant battle with the Philistines, is they had built forts and fortifications all along the way. And God's worried that if Pharaoh changes his mind, then word's gonna get out and the Israelites are gonna be caught in a place where they're gonna have to do battle and they're not gonna be in a good position to do battle because the Egyptians and the Philistines are already there. And the second thing happening in this is that God says that he doesn't want them to go to war. But it's interesting because as some of your translations will highlight that when God tells them this, he tells the Israelites to leave with chasmusim, which is armed. He tells them to leave armed. And I don't know what that would be. Because if you have been enslaved for hundreds and hundreds of years. Do you know the thing that you don't have? Arms. Like, I don't know what they took, where they like broke pots and took shards of glass with them. If they fashioned something out of brooms and hay, or they're just gonna take all the bricks that they made and we'll just throw bricks at people. Like, I don't know what it is, but God says, when you leave here, be armed. The third thing, is if God didn't want the Israelites to face war, then why does Exodus tell us that he hardened Pharaoh's heart? Listen what Exodus tells us in Exodus 14. It says, then I, this is God talking, will harden Pharaoh's stubborn heart even more and he will pursue the Israelites. Honor will come to me through the actions of Pharaoh and his army and the Egyptians will know that I am the eternal one. So in all of the story of the Exodus, three times we are told that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. But what we're not told is how that happens. Because things that are soft and malleable, things that can be managed, like they harden a lot of different ways. So like imagine in the ancient world, this picture of someone making a pot out of clay and they put it on that little wheel, you know, like they like, Demi Moore did in Ghost, and they just like spin it around and spin it around, and it's really soft. And one of the ways that you make that hard, the one of the ways you harden that, is you, there haven't always been kilns in the world. You just set it outside. And you let nature take its course with the raw materials that are already there. Fourth, God did not want the Israelites to have any motivation at all to return to Egypt. Which means a couple of things. 
First, it means that God will lead you. But it also means that God will not force you. God says, I'm concerned that they will regret their decision to leave. Because God can send all the plagues in the world. But if the, Egypt, if the Israelites want to stay, they can stay. And this is instructive for so many of the decisions that we have to make. Like so often, we really want someone else to make the decision. So when it goes south, we have someone else to blame for the decision. Like, this is your choice. God says, I have created the conditions for you to choose. But the choice is yours. The Egyptians might come after you. And this is a choice you'll have to make again and again and again. And going this route through the desert toward the sea, but going that route ends up taking the Israelites to the very thing that God was trying to avoid because Pharaoh does change his mind. And Pharaoh's army does pursue the Israelites. And listen to what they say in Exodus 14. They say to Moses, were there not enough graves in Egypt? Is that why you brought us out here to die in the desert? Why have you done this to us? Remember, God thinks it's their decision. But now they say it was Moses' decision. Because the best way to get out of your decision is to find someone else responsible for your decision. Didn't we tell you in Egypt, they say to Moses, stop pestering us so that we can get on with our lives and serve the Egyptians? No, not really. You didn't tell me that. Like you weren't all fired up about it. And you, you kind of beat around the bush a little bit, but I don't remember you saying like, you know what? Us being slaves here is really our jam. We just want to keep doing that. And they go on and say, if it would have been better for us to live as slaves to the Egyptians than to die out here in the desert. And the Israelites are stuck between the Red Sea and an army. And this is what Moses says to the people. He says, don't be afraid. Stand your ground and witness how the eternal will rescue you today. Take a good look at the Egyptians. For after today, you will never see them again. The eternal will fight on your behalf while you watch in silence. Well, you know the rest of that story. Moses moves toward the Red Sea. He follows God's instructions, raises his staff and arms, and God parts the sea. And the Israelites walk across. And as they are pursued by the Egyptians, the wall collapses and the Egyptians are drowned and die. 
But then on the other side of the Red Sea, this is what Exodus tells us happens next. Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Eternal One. I will sing to the Eternal for He has won a great victory. He has thrown the chariot into the sea, horse and rider. The Eternal is my strength and my song and He has come to save me. He is my God and I will praise Him. He is the God of my Father and I will exalt Him. The Eternal is a warrior. The Eternal is His name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has thrown into the sea and his high-ranking officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters covered them. They sank to the muddy depths like a stone. Now this is absolutely remarkable because the Israelites have been slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years. And it's hard for us to imagine because we're so familiar with Judaism and so familiar with Christianity and kind of coming to a place or gathering with people to worship, but they've never been a worshiping community before. Like there were no hymnals, like they get on the other side and somehow they sing this song. Like, I don't know what you think, but if I started like singing a song right now, like spontaneously, you would have no way of knowing what the next words were going to be. Like, I don't know if this is like some sort of mass hypnosis worship, or maybe like some commentators say Moses like sang a part of it and they sang it back and he just made the song up. Like he is the, like Snoop Dogg, like the greatest freestyler ever. <laughs> but they sing this song and they keep singing it. Like not just now, if you fast forward in your Bible to the Psalms, they're still singing things like some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And what's important about that is that in this season of Lent, like we are taking each of the Sundays as celebration days that as we have fasted during the week, that we pause on Sunday to feast. And while fasting is primarily what Lent is about, the Exodus reminds us that after a time of deprivation, when we see what God has done, what God is doing, and what God is capable of, that the natural response to that is to celebrate. And to celebrate God and celebrate what God has done. And I mention that because we live in a time where people are increasingly skeptical about celebrating and increasingly skeptical about God and God actually doing something. Now, when things happen in our world, when things happen for us personally, like there's a whole list of reasons why that thing happened. Like I was at the right place at the right time. Oh, I just got lucky. Well, she and I, we went to school together. It was a connection. 
And more and more, Christians are saying less and less. Thank God that this would not have happened. I would not be in the midst of this experience. I would not experience this joy. I would have nothing to celebrate if it weren't for the actions of God. And every now and then, when we're tired or vulnerable, when our guard is down, something good will happen. And we'll just slip up and we'll say something like, well, praise God. But when we're being thoughtful, there's always some other reason. Because this is the kind of story that many people in our world and maybe some of us find very suspicious and we're skeptical. And we ask questions like, did that really happen? Did God really open up the sea and have this mass of people walk across it? Like, what are, what are all the physics of that? Isn't this just a story for children? Like, that's for VBS. But aren't we much smarter and much more sophisticated now? Don't we know a whole lot more about the world than all of that? And as smart and sophisticated and progressive as many of us think we are, and as good and needed as some of those questions are, none of those questions are new. Like there have been faithful women and men of God who have asked those same questions that we think make us super sophisticated. They've been asking and responding to those questions for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And that doesn't mean that you have to be satisfied with their responses. But you should at least know that the questions aren't new. We're actually not smarter than people who lived 2,000 years ago. And we know some things about the world, but the deeper questions of purpose and meaning what we spend our time doing, love and connection and relationship, none of that is new. And so one of my favorite thinkers wrote this about this particular story. He says, the passage can be read two ways. The first is that what happened was a suspension of the laws of nature. It was a supernatural event. The water stood literally like a wall. The second is that what happened was miraculous, not because the laws of nature were suspended. To the contrary, as the computer simulation shows, and they've done all of these computer simulations, that's what he's talking about. The exposure of dry land at a particular point in the Red Sea was a natural outcome of the strong east wind. What made it miraculous is that it happened just here, just then when the Israelites seemed trapped, unable to go toward, be, forward because of the sea, unable to turn back because of the Egyptian army pursuing them. There is a significant difference between these two interpretations. The first appeals to our sense of wonder. How extraordinary that the laws of nature should be suspended to allow an escaping people to go free. 
It is a story to appeal to the imagination of a child. But the naturalistic explanation is wondrous at another level entirely. Here the Torah is using the device of irony. What made the Egyptians of the time of Ramses so formidable was the fact that they possessed the latest and most powerful form of military technology, the horse-drawn chariot. It made them unbeatable in battle and fearsome. What happens at the sea is poetic justice of the most exquisite kind. There is only one circumstance in which a group of people traveling by foot can escape a highly trained army of charioteers, namely when the route passes through a muddy seabed. The people can walk across, but the chariot wheels get stuck in the mud. The Egyptian army can neither advance nor retreat. The wind drops, the water returns, the powerful are now powerless, while the powerless have made their way to freedom. This is why I love this story and why I keep coming back to it over and over and over again is that in our disenchanted and skeptical age, in this story, either way you read it, God is at work. And some of us have no problem celebrating the God at work in the ways that we can see. Matter of fact, that's what we want. We want a God who does something big and demonstrable that we can name. There can be no denying that that was the God who did it. But in this story, and the same is true with the plagues, there is also a well-known natural phenomenon, which also can't explain it. And in either case, It's God at work. The timing of God calling Moses. The instruction to go through the desert rather than the coastal route. There are a hundred little decisions, a million little commands that have led the Israelites to this place right now between the Egyptians and the sea. Which means for us that God is at work in ways that we can see and God is at work in ways that we cannot see. But either way, it's God who is at work. And God is most at work when you are stuck between two challenges. Like it's in that moment where it feels like to you, you cannot go forward and you cannot go backwards. That's when God's at work. And there will be times when you can see it and name it and know it. And there will be times when you can't and God's still at work. And you can open your Bible and read it from beginning all the way to the end. And it tells the story, the story of this God. And this God never delivers his people to comfort. God delivers his people through challenge. And that is the story of the scriptures. 
that in the midst of the challenge is where God is most at work. And whenever God is at work, that's the time for celebration. That when God's at work, that's the time for celebration. And I don't know what's going on in your life right now. Financially, with your faith, with your family, with friends, I don't know. But I, knew, I know God's at work in that challenge. And maybe more so than God has ever been at work in your life, God is at work right now. So there are a few invitations to celebration in this story. And the first one I'd like to make is just stay open to your options. There is an ancient Jewish midrash and commentary and interpretation of this story that says that when the Israelites were stuck between the Red Sea and the Egyptians, that there were four groups of people, that they divided themselves into four groups. And the first group said, let's throw ourselves into the ocean, into the waters. The second group says, let's return to Egypt. Still, the third group says, let's wage war. And I don't know what, we got some brooms and some bricks. We can take on the most formal army in the world. And the fourth group says, let us pray to God. But none of those things happen in this story. Because God sees more options than the Israelites do. And it might be the case that wherever you are and whatever you're experiencing, God sees more options than you do. Remember what happens in Exodus 14? It says, Moses said to the people, don't be afraid, stand your ground and witness how the eternal will rescue you today. Take a good look at the Egyptians for after today, you will never see them again. The eternal will fight on your behalf while you watch in silence. One of the great disservices we do to ourselves is arbitrarily foreclose our options. And we do that because we don't think God is doing anything. And what if right now for you, there are options available that you just haven't thought of? And because you haven't thought of them, doesn't mean they don't exist. And I just got a tragic phone call yesterday morning from someone who I known and love for years this weekend tried twice to commit suicide. And I, I, I say that without any judgment because I don't know all of the tensions and contours of that life. But I know that that's just one 
option and I want them to know like there are always more options if you don't foreclose what God can do. And for goodness sake, it's okay, even in the 21st century, to say that you believe that God will do something. Because as someone who believes in the resurrection, I have to have a plausibility structure that demands that God can do anything. And in our age, with all of our education, one of the things the Christian community has lost significantly is the ability to believe and to say that God can do anything. You stay open to the options. And the second is just to bring your tambourine. So there is this song. It's called the Song of the Sea that Moses freestyles with the the Israelites when they cross over to the sea. But that's not the only thing that happens. One of the parts of the story, maybe my favorite part of the story, is what happens immediately after. This is what Exodus tells us in chapter 15. It says, when Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and chariot drivers drove into the sea, the eternal caused the waters to collapse upon them. But the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. The prophetess Miriam, Aaron's sister, picked up a tambourine and all the rest of the women followed with tambourines and joyful dancing. So if you've been around the scriptures for a long time, you might know, someone might have told you that Miriam's name means bitter. But there's a second meaning to her name, which is rebellion. And this is the tambourine rebellion. Because a lot's happened in this story and the Israelites are finally free, they can leave. God tells them to leave armed. They've gotta take all of this stuff, get their kids together. You had enough trouble getting your kids out of the house this morning. And they've gotta get all of this together. And in the middle of that, Miriam stops to get her tambourine. And she's not the only one. All the women have their tambourines. Miriam's name means bitter. And she had every right to be. Because she was born into slavery at the most brutal time of Egyptian slavery. Do you remember that part where Pharaoh tried to kill her little brother? And she has been a slave her entire life. But she brings her tambourine And her life has been hard, but she comes prepared to celebrate. I say this because I have a growing concern about our culture. And I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that there are very real, very serious mental health and traumatic 
issues with many of us. And the reality is that the Christian church was late to the party, that we didn't take it seriously. Not only did we dismiss it, we mocked people who confessed to it. And if someone was in serious trouble with their mental health or experiencing trauma, like we had no space for that conversation and nothing to do with them. But now we're experiencing something slightly different where we're walking through all of the difficulty of our trauma and we are beginning to define ourselves by our trauma. So I was speaking at a conference in Denver last November. And on the second day, this young woman comes up to me, she's in her late 20s. I've never seen this person in my entire life. I say, I'm Sean, she tells me her name. And then for the next five minutes, she goes on with a list of all of her issues and trauma, which seemed extraordinarily real and painful. But I did walk away from that conversation and think, is this what we lead with now? And here's what I want you to hear, Ecclesia. You are not defined by the worst thing that you have ever done. And you are not defined by the worst thing that's ever been done to you. The ancient Jews believed that the women, the women were the only ones in Israel of the people who never succumbed to the belief that they were slaves that they told themselves that they were wives and mothers. They never defined themselves by their slavery, even in the middle of their slavery. And so they come out to the desert ready to celebrate what God has done. And in the midst of all the difficulty that so many of us have experienced and are experiencing, and if you're not having a bad time today, you will sometime in the future. Bring your tambourine. Expect God to do something that you will celebrate. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.